Hey, I want to know, though, what is your favorite Christmas movie? We all have one. Um, and it's that time of the year where maybe you've watched it already. Maybe you have plans on watching it. Show of hands, how many of you, your favorite Christmas movie is the iconic A Christmas Story, right? Uh, you, with with uh, Ralphie, the Red Rider, BB Gun, some of you. How about something that's maybe a little bit more relatable, that the ins and outs of Christmas time are a little chaotic, so Christmas Vacation tops that list for you. One of my personal favorites for sure. Uh, where are my diehard people at, right? Just like you will die on that hill that diehard is a Christmas movie, right? So my favorite Christmas movie, un, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, though, is The Grinch. And I, and I love The Grinch. It's a classic. And uh, most of you are aware that there's actually three versions of The Grinch. Um, a picture will come up your screen to kind of show these. We have the, the OG animated cartoon. You have the live action with Jim Carrey. And then you have the newest animated feature that came out just a few years ago. Now, I'm going to make a pretty bold statement, uh, controversial maybe, that, that this one is actually my favorite. They did some cool, unique things with it. But my favorite favorite quote from any of the three Grinch movies comes from the Jim Carrey live action film when he's kind of going through his uh, schedule for the day. And maybe you remember this quote, but this kind of, you can read this along with me, but he goes like this. He says, he's going through his schedule. He says, four o'clock, wallow in self-pity, 4.30, stare into the abyss. 5 p.m., solve world hunger, tell no one. 5.30, jazzercise. 6.30, dinner with me. I can't cancel that again. 7 o'clock, wrestle with my self-loathing. Um, I'm booked. Of course, if I bump the loathing tonight, and I could still be done in time to lay in bed, stare into the ceiling, and slip slowly into madness. But what would I wear? It's a great quote. Because what it's trying to do is paint the picture of who the Grinch is. This, this person, or whatever you want to call him, a, 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 a thing that is trying to live and navigate life without hope. And that's what the Grinch is about. Someone who has no hope, and then there's an entire community of the who's who have hope and kind of how they both navigate some of the turmoils of life. And that's what I kind of view the Grinch as. It's this dichotomy of Grinch hope versus Whoville hope. You see, Grinch hope says uh, really redundantly is just there is no hope. There is no rainbow uh, to be found at the end of the day. Don't waste your time. Hope is a young person's game. But in Grinch hope, you also have that deep, maybe burning question, deep down, that what if, just what if, there is hope or joy to be found, and you will only find it a moment after the end, and you waste an entire life of potentially enjoying it. And that's contrasted against Whoville hope. And Whoville hope just literally says, everything is rainbows and butterflies, nothing can get you down if you don't let it, right? It's a great sentiment, makes for a good movie, but a lot of us who have lived life at any age or fashion know that's just not realistic. It's just not the way life works. There's things that go right. There's things that go wrong in life. There are things that surprise us, things that go according to plan, and things that don't. And so we talk about this idea of hope. That's what we're kind of trying to draw this tension on this morning is that when something in life eventually fails, we need something to keep us going. And that something is called hope. That when, when the things don't turn out the way we wanted to, or when we pray those prayers and they don't get answered in the same fashion we wish they would, we need something to keep us going. And sometimes we talk about hope and we trivialize that we hope in big things, small things, that we really don't know uh, how it's going to turn out. But if I were to ask you this morning, if I were to just, just have you answer that question for yourself, think about it for a few moments, where do you find hope in life? What is hope to you? 
take a few seconds to really think about how would you answer that question? What do you hope in? And maybe more importantly, the bigger question is, where do you turn when life eventually fails you? Some of us, we, we might say, well, our hope is in, is in politics, it's in government. And I hope that they're going to really turn things around and life will finally get back to the way it should be. Some of us, we hope in stuff. We think that something newer or bigger or better will give us a sense of fulfillment in life. Others of us, well, we hope in relationships or intimacy. Well, well somebody different, somebody new. I'll pick a better spouse the next time around. Or maybe we hope in intimacy. We say, well, I just take that next step. That'll fill a void in my life. Maybe you hope in education, your 401k, a certain ideology, the stock market, self-help, just making it to the weekend. So again, where do you find hope? Now you might be here today, and as someone who maybe is a Christian, you might say, well, Eric, I hope in God, I hope in Jesus. And I've been around the block uh, long enough to know that even when we would raise our hand to say, I hope in Jesus, that hope can be wavering. That, that even though that might be the right answer as someone who attends church, that might be the right answer for someone who claims to be a disciple of Jesus, that hope in God is actually wavering in your life right now. Because you, you went to God when something bad happened with the notion and the hope that he could have stopped it or given you a different outcome. And yet those trivial things of life still occurred. And so it's maybe led you to this point. So maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're, you're like me. I struggle with this sometimes when we talk about hope. And I say, yeah, of course I hope in God. I hope in Jesus. But deep down, there's sometimes this thought or question to me, and it's this. It's that, well, it doesn't really matter what God does now because of what he didn't do then. I want to have hope in God, but he didn't come through last time. I'm going to claim that my hope is in Jesus because I know that's the Sunday school answer, but if I'm being honest, I'm not sure that I do. And I just want to say really quickly, pastorally, if that's where you find yourself this morning, I understand that if your faith never fully recovers from that lack of hope or from those doubts you're wrestling with because of what didn't happen then, that's understandable. It takes time, and if it recovers, if you get to a point in placing all of your hope in Jesus again, it'll be stronger than ever, but it's not something that happens in an instant. You see, here's what hope isn't. Hope isn't propping up that everything's rainbows and butterflies, unicorns, glitter, sparkles, everything's always up and to the right. That's not what hope is. At the same time, too, though, hope is also not just that the provisions of God, the blessings of God will come into your life, fix all of your problems exactly when and how you want them to. Hope is more than just wishful thinking. So let's talk about that for a little bit this morning. Is finding real, lasting, helpful hope even possible? We are in week two of our teaching series called Christmas Cookies, in which we're looking at the four ingredients of Christmas. Love, hope, joy, peace. Today's ingredient number two, talking about hope. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the prophet Isaiah chapter seven, about a little uh, more than uh, to the right, halfway through your Bible. Um, and we're gonna start there this morning. Every week, we're gonna start in Isaiah chapter seven. If you have your Bible with you, join me there. If you're a note taker, you can get those out as well. So just to set the stage, 
age really quickly before we dive into this text. We're about 700 years before the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. And God picks a man by the name of Isaiah and says, Isaiah, you're going to be my prophet for the people of Israel. Now the thing is, a prophet wasn't necessarily someone who was telling the future. Rather, a prophet was somebody selected to reorient and redirect the hearts of God. Uh, of the people of God. And sometimes in that process, God's plan for the future is revealed. And at this point in the chapter that we're going to see in the book of Isaiah, for the people of God, the ancient tribe of Israel, there was no hope. All hope was gone. Because the world power, the Assyrians, they were expanding further than ever before. The promised land, well, that, that, that was long gone at this point. The temple was on brink of destruction. And on top of that, those days of slavery in Egypt actually probably sound a little enticing at this point. And so we're going to read this dialogue between uh, Isaiah, the prophet, God himself, and then King Ahaz, the king of the Israelite people, somewhat of their representation before God. This is where we start. Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, King Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The people of God at this point, they're yearning. They're crying out for God's deliverance. And Ahab, somewhat a representation of all those people, chimes in and says, Isaiah, this whole notion that God is good, that God's going to swoop in and rescue us, I'm not buying it anymore. So much so, I'm not even going to pretend to test him. At this point, King Ahaz is a man who has everything except one thing in life. And that one thing is hope. Isaiah looks at him and says, seriously, dude? You trust in the things of man. You trust in men themselves. You give them lots of patience. Why not try God on for size? And it's almost as if King Ahaz says this. My word's not his, but he tugs at something I think all of us, maybe at some point or another, we kind of feel this way in our relationship with God, and it's this. It's why would God deliver us now when he hasn't delivered us yet? King Ahaz just said, why, why would God deliver us now, at this point, when he hasn't delivered us yet? The oppression we're facing is still here. The turmoil we're going through is still going on. Our cries haven't ceased. Ever been there before? I have, countless times. And sometimes you find your spot in that, in that depth without hope. Can I ever get out of this place? And by get out, I don't mean literally climb your way out. It's, am I ever going to have hope again? Because can you have hope in someone or something that you once did or not? You know, in my line of work, one of the most frustrating things that I have to deal with is when people, not when people come to me, when people come to me with questions and they want answers and I don't have them. Circumstances like, Eric, here's what went down in my life. 
Here's what's going on. Here's this sickness or here's this separation or here's this pain I'm going through. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed with all fervor and tenacity with every ounce of faith that I had and God did nothing. What do I do with that? And I can sense their pain. I can sense your frustration. I can sense your anger. And I have no answers. I recently read an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they interviewed this woman um, who is an agnostic doctor of psychology. I'm going to show you uh, kind of why, where I'm going here with this. So she, she doesn't believe in God. She just believes that everybody at some point will just be a, a pile of dust. And she says one of the most common questions that she gets in, in her line of work is when people come to her and say, hey, hey, we don't believe in God. We don't believe in afterlife. So how do we talk to our kids about death? And so I was like, oh, this, I, I want to know the answer to this. There's got to be something good here. So I'm, I'm anticipating what she's going to say. I'm thinking, oh, maybe she's going to talk about biology. Maybe there's something that's, oh, you know, in the years of doing this, here's how to explain it or lessen the blow. You ready? This is what she says. How do we talk to kids when we have no concept of an afterlife, no belief in God? You ready for this? This is what she says. She says, lie to them. Just straight up lie to them. I know it's not what we believe. I know it's not what we think. I know it's not the values we hold to, but lie to them. And she goes on to explain why. She says, lie to them. Because they need something to hold on to in times of grief. An adult could wrestle with the idea of being a pile of dust, but not a child. Doesn't this scream something every single one of us gets and understands? believer of Jesus or not, from King Ahaz to the Israelite people to you and I today, when something in life eventually fails, we all need something to hold on to. And as a church, as as disciples of Jesus, we believe in an afterlife. We believe in a God of the universe. And we believe in the power of hope. And hope is a powerful, powerful thing. And it's not just reserved for political campaigns. It's not just reserved for, for, for sports franchises when they want to kind of restart things. That hope is a powerful tool for us that we are called to believe in. And it's not just, just hope for hope's sakes, but it has a spiritual, emotional, a mental impact in our life. And church, I want you to have hope, but not just any hope. I want you to have a hope that is true and a hope that lasts. In the book of Isaiah, God hears the cries of Israel. He embraces the frustrations of Ahaz. And when they are seemingly shouting out to God, God, are you going to do something or not? You've given us all of these promises, and it's been quite a while since you've actually done something. Are you going to do something or not? And his answer is yes. Have hope. For I am coming. God could have promised possessions. He could have promised homes, he could have promised wealth, he could have promised health, he could have promised anything, and yet he chose to promise hope. But not just any hope. Hope in the Savior of the world. Hope in the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. And so this Christmas season, as we talk about, and we think about the birth of Jesus, it's really God's hope coming to us. 
We put it this way, is that the incarnation is God's hope chasing us down. What the incarnation represents is God being true to his promises, God being true to his word, saying, if you need something to hope in, remember that I am coming after you with that hope. And now that we live past Jesus, we get to reflect and say, we know we can have trust and hope in Jesus because he, in fact, came. The Israelites, King Ahaz, God, where are you at? Emmanuel is on his way. God with us will come. It might be helpful for you to know that the people who brought us scripture, they walked through dark, dark valleys in their life. They walked through turmoil, famine, war, oppression, persecution, loneliness, abandonment, and everything else in between. And they persevered to bring us the word of God. They didn't persevere to bring us the things of God. They didn't persevere to bring us uh, uh, the, the blessings or the provisions of God. They persevered to bring us God himself. So if you're in that spot where you feel like turning back to God, even though you're unsure, when you're in that, that, that moment where it seems maybe a little irrational because of what didn't happen in the past, it seems perhaps a little far-fetched to turn back to God and hope in him again, No, you are in very, very good company. I'll give you some examples. Moses was left for just a few weeks to return to absolute chaos and the worship of idols at a camp. Joseph was mistreated by a dysfunctional family. David bounced back from devastating moral failures. Nehemiah withstood discouragement in a harsh political environment. Peter was disappointed with his own ability to withstand outward pressures. And what about Abraham? The one man that God appeared to and said, I'm going to make you the father of my people. You will have descendants that outnumber the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. But by the way, it's going to take a few decades before you even have that first child. What about Abraham? This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 18, about what Abraham was going through. It says, again, it's all hope. Abraham in hope. Believed. And so because the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Against all hope, he still chose to have hope in God. All of these people did what seemed irrational, naive, useless, given of what didn't happen prior. Yet they clung to their hope in God. Not their circumstances, not their stuff, not the things God did or didn't do, but in God himself. So why do we need hope? It's because life will fail. So I ask you again, where do you find yours? The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, talking about this idea of hope. He said, some choose to trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Eugene Peterson authors uh, the message translations, which is kind of somewhat of of, of a summary of the Bible in some parts, says the chariots will rust and the horses will pull up lame. My mind goes to what Jesus is recounted in saying Matthew chapter six, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. 
You and I have a tendency to hope in a lot of things that pull up lame or things that rust, do we not? We hope in people. Well, this will be the time they'll change. I'll give them, I'll give them, I'll give them a 17th chance. Maybe they'll, they'll turn it around this time or not. We hope in, in stuff. If I could just get the newer, the bigger, the better, I'll be a little bit more fulfilled. I think sometimes we, we hope in our brownie points with God. Well, God, haven't I gone to church enough? Haven't I served enough for you to do something in my life or not? We hope in government, we hope in the stock market, you name it. We hope in a lot of things. But all of those things are things of this life, things of this earth, trying to find hope in circumstances that maybe could be different if I figured out the right formula or not. As C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you will get neither. You see, being a Christian, being a disciple of Jesus means we are signing up for a different way. We release the old way that says, give me something new for my hope. Give me something bigger. Give me something different. Give me something better, and then I will have hope. The gospel says, make me someone new. Make me someone better. Make me someone different. So when I think about it, when, when all is said and done, I, if we're honest with ourselves, our, our definition of hope, I just don't think it's a very good definition. Like when the Bible rewrites and talks about hope, I think there's, there's, there's a disconnect. When we say the phrase hope, when we talk about hope versus what the Bible has recorded, is this is what hope is and what hope looks like. Let me show you. The Bible was predominantly written in two ancient languages, ancient Hebrew for the Old Testament, ancient Greek um, uh, for the New Testament. And so when the, when the writers of Scripture talked about hope, this is what they gave us. So in, in the Greek and the New Testament, it's, it's the root word els, uh, and more, more importantly, ilpis, and it means confidence to anticipate with pleasure. Confidence, boldness assuredness, but there's a joy attached to it. In the Old Testament, when they talked about the hope in the Savior who is to come, in, in the Hebrew, it's the word tikva. Sometimes it's ha-tikva, meaning the hope you have in Jesus. As one rabbi defines it, he says, it is hope is more than a dream. It's an expectation. Isn't American 21st century hope mainly a dream? It's a grab the, 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 the lucky rabbit's foot. Fingers cross, cross your heart, hope to die, that things maybe could potentially be different if everything bounces the right way. Okay, I will, I will try that on for size, for hope. That's what hope is for us. But when scripture, when the people of God talked about hope, when Isaiah writes, you have hope in the Messiah who is to come, Emmanuel, God with you, it is a certainty It is an assurance that the future is going to look different. Your future will have a drastically different outcome because you have confidence. It is not a dream. It is an expectation. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not about ifs, ands, or buts. It's about certainties of how the future in the kingdom of God will be different for each and every one of us who believes. That's why Jesus is called to be the object of our hope because he reigns supreme over the obstacles that get in the way. Not a hope anchored to mine or your ability to navigate circumstances, to, to interpret life's hardest problems. Rather, a hope 
anchored in the Savior of the world? Is he hoping Jesus has power because it's the confidence that the future will be different? Because Emmanuel, God with us, has come. Because his kingdom has been established, because he reigns forever, because the spirit moves and the church lives on. Don't take my word for it. First Peter chapter 1. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, he, he made a mess of his life and his faith. And we just spent 28 weeks studying the book of Acts. And there's one point in the book of Acts, I don't know if you remember it, where Peter and the rest of the disciples, their hands on their hands and knees praying for God. God, you know what Stephen's going through? You know what James is going through? It'd be really cool if you performed a miracle. Could you get them out of that hardship? Could you get them out of that trial? And God doesn't rescue them. And then you flip over a few pages and you see Peter praying and worshiping and gets miraculously released out of prison. How come God moved for Peter but not for Stephen? This is what Peter says. First Peter, he writes in his letter, First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept where? In heaven for you. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor. Or when Jesus Christ is revealed, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your souls. What do we do when we claim to have faith in Jesus, but we don't actually trust it? What do we do when, I, if I were to ask you, say, do you hope in God? Is your hope in Jesus? And you would slide that hand up in the air, but deep down, you're like, I'm not sure. I don't know if he's actually going to come through or not. At that point, it's really probably time to consider where does your hope actually lie? You could say Jesus all you want. You can claim God all you want, but where does your hope actually reside? So how do we have hope in Jesus? Why can we have hope in Jesus? It's for this reason. We have hope in Jesus because Jesus is with us. Isaiah chapter 7. I heard those cries. I see that turmoil, that persecution. Emmanuel is on his way. And here's what it does is hope in the incarnation leads hope into the perfect life of Jesus, which leads hope in the resurrection, which leads to hope in the power of the Spirit given to anyone who believes, which then leads to hope in the church. The brothers and sisters unified, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We come together to care for one another because we know that the future is different, not just here on earth, but in eternity. What does hope in Jesus actually look like? It reveals that you are not your past. 
It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. Therefore, you can have hope that who you are now is not who God sees you to be. God sees you to be if you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He believes in you to be the redeemed whole person that his son was. Hope in Jesus means what you experience now is a blip on the radar. So the call to live generously, the call to live sacrificially, the call to put others before yourself, you know what's at stake. You know that eternity is real. Hope in Jesus empowers us to do the most for the present world because we know that time here is finite. That when you feel hopeless, hope in Jesus means you have a family, a church family who loves you, who cares for you, who is called to bear your burdens with you. Hope in Jesus means that when all hope feels lost, there is a God who miraculously, some 2,000 years ago, sent his son Jesus to be born so that he might die for you out of love to give you everlasting life. Close with this. Why hope? Why have hope? Why have hope in Jesus? It's because when something in life eventually fails and you need something to keep you going, why not trust in that which is eternal? Why not anchor yourself to eternity? Why not hope? in the hope that is chasing us down. I want to close my message time this morning by reading what Isaiah the prophet will write a handful of chapters later. He says this in Isaiah chapter 28, sorry, chapter 40, verse 28 through 30. He gives us these words. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He will not grow weary. He will not grow tired. In his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not 